Now I'm doubly excited to introduce our guest, Jeff Schmitz. Jeff is the Chief People Officer at Zebra Technologies and is one of the most passionate people that I've come across when it comes to the integration of technology and retail and healthcare. So Jeff, my guess is that Jess and I and so many others today have used your technology that is produced by Zebra Technologies and we don't even know about it. So Jeff, can you give us a little preview about what your company does? Yeah, first, Jess and Spencer, thanks for having me. And you're right to say, Spencer, that we often talk about Zebra Technologies. You see us in our everyday life, but you don't notice us, right? So we kind of sit in the background, but we facilitate a lot of the things you do each and every day. So the company started 54 years ago. And one of our first innovations uh, that the company was built on was barcode printing. In fact, that's where the, the name Zebra comes from, those black and white lines you see in a barcode. And if you look around today, everything's barcoded in your everyday life. You may see them in a retail environment on a shelf label. You may rent a car and see that they have a barcode on the car or every package you receive from e-commerce. And that's where the company really grew to a billion-dollar business. And in 2014, we bought the enterprise business of Motorola at two and a half times our size. And that brought with it the scanning technology, scanning you'd see in your everyday life, scanning you out of a um, car rental where they're scanning the barcode, or someone scanning a package when they deliver it to you, or uh, someone scanning, uh, having you sign on an electronic device for wine you may have purchased. Um, that's on our mobile computing devices. So we sit in those three areas, barcode printing, now scanning, like a handheld scanner, and our mobile computing platform, which you see at large retailers. And we serve multiple industries. We start with retail, about 40% of our business, manufacturing, transportation, logistics, and healthcare. And when we talk about our business, we tend to talk about it, about putting, uh, giving a performance edge to those on the front line. Because if you think about those devices, they sit in someone's hand. And where we're taking the business now is work is changing and we want to invest in helping drive the way work is going to be done in the future. And that means things like robotics and robotics uh, solutions in warehouses, things like machine vision, where I can inspect parts out of manufacturing quickly through um, video, effectively video analytics and what we call machine vision and software where in the retail environment, we help you manage both your inventory and your people, which are the two biggest assets in a retail environment. So we're helping change the way work is going to be done in the future. So Jeff, this is absolutely fascinating. I suspect many people today, they'll hit purchase on Amazon or Target or Walmart.com, and they have no idea what is happening behind the scenes, how that package actually gets from the manufacturer to their front door. And it sounds like Zebra Technologies is a big part uh, of that process. Um, so I don't know if this is going to bring up a sore subject. As you can tell, I know very little about this space, but Zebra Technologies barcodes, does this also include QR codes? I used a QR code last night to pull down one of my children's um, uh, 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 syllabi uh, from school. They used a QR code. Is that also part of kind of your technology ecosystem? Yeah, it's one of the innovations over the last few years. Though Those barcodes you traditionally see as as lines, thicker and thinner lines, uh, which would be called a 1D barcode. When you move into things like QR codes, those are what's called 2D barcodes, and they contain a lot more information. 
it's important uh, that our customers are able to both decode 1D and 2D barcodes. And it's been one of the technology drivers beyond people upgrading uh, some of the scanning devices that they use. So indeed, that technology is used to label products and things in the retail, manufacturing, transportation, logistics kind of environments. It sounds like this is just such a rapidly changing uh, environment. Um, how do you find, let me just jump right into it. You know, how do you, how do you create a culture at Zebra Technologies? You as chief people officer, you are, it sounds like both the architect and kind of guardian of that culture at Zebra Technologies. You know, how do you, how do you create a culture that is constantly trying to re reinvent itself? And at the same time, how do you find the right talent that thrives in that type of culture? Yeah, I'm going to step back in time a little bit, Spencer, to address this, because I think one of the most important decisions that was made at Zebra that really led to a fair bit of success is when Zebra, a billion-dollar company, bought a company two and a half times its size, a carve-out of Motorola, it really was going to be a cultural challenge. And I think our CEO at the time, Anders Gustafsson, made a decision to invest in inventing our own culture. The traditional Zebra business had kind of a small company appeal to it, and the Motorola uh, group that came in, the enterprise division, had a much bigger company culture. And the decision he made to say, let's decide what the culture we want this entity to be when we come together, and let's define it, and let's train everyone on it, was one of the most important moments it's Zebra, in my opinion. As many of us know, a lot of M&As don't work out. A vast majority do not. And oftentimes that comes down to culture. I think Anders recognized that. He invested in it. And that's built the foundation of our culture today. Now, I think I definitely feel part of ownership of the culture. And we continue to evolve that. And we're certainly looking at some things now uh, to how do we update our values? How do we update our uh, purpose and our mission? And how do we do that in a way that continues to breathe life into the culture? Because I think culture is probably one of the most valuable assets a company has. Of course, its people are its biggest assets. But culture, and I like to use the Gartner one of the Gartner definitions with how we get things done around here and how we treat each other, that's really, really important. And I do feel like I'm one of the guardians of it, but I think we all own the culture because it's how we treat each other. It's how we get things done and in a way that that, that feels good. And we always test that when we interview people. So one of the things you mentioned, Spencer, is how do you make sure you get that kind of talent? I think we're very proud of our culture. I think when people do come and interview, they get a feeling for that. And is this the place you want to be? And I think the culture extends to every interaction that employees have with Zebra, and that includes the interview. So Obviously, people are interviewing. They're making a choice while the company's making a choice. Get a good view of the culture. They, we try to give them that. And whenever I talk to our interns when they leave, I always tell them, hey, if you really like the culture here, make sure you ask a question when you go to interview because it's your responsibility to make sure you fit in too. Ask what it's like to be at the company. Ask how they treat their employees. Ask how they treat each other. How do they get things done? I think it's a good question for anybody interviewing for a job if you haven't thought of it. So I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on an experience that, that you just articulated. I, I know Jess is interested in this. So Zebra, a few years back, decided to buy a company two and a half times its size. Um, what are what were some of the learnings that came out of that acquisition uh, from, from 
like a, a culture standpoint, I, I know many, many organizations when they, you know, enter into uh, an acquisition, it's like, okay, in 96 hours, everything will be cut and dry and we'll have, have the culture that we want. Uh, oh, Jeff, what were some of the learnings that came out of that for you? Yeah, I, and I'm going to refer to not just that acquisition, but others, because that one was kind of this key moment of saying, neither culture could be the right culture. Let's invent a new one. I think what we've learned, and I think that was an important lesson. I think if, if anyone finds themselves in that same situation, that was really a great learning. I would duplicate that. But I would say that as we've bought other companies, and a lot, and a fair number of these have been smaller companies, I think one of the things we do right out of the box is we make sure that we help that company understand the culture that we have. And given oftentimes we're much bigger, it's hard to avoid that culture. And usually small companies have very tight cultures as well, but they usually differ a lot. A few hundred people company is not gonna have the culture of 10, a 10,000 person company like ours. So we try to make sure they understand the culture that we have so they can fit in. We also try to listen to what things do they have in their culture that need to be preserved. And I think we've learned over time that that's just as critical. Yes, they would need to understand how to operate in a larger company than as a culture, but we also need to understand and preserve and perhaps learn and expand on some of the things that they have as a culture. And I think that's that's been a big learning for us. Jess, any questions that this is prompting on your end? I know you're passionate about uh, this area. I looked you guys up on NASDAQ. I think you have like a $14 billion market cap today. Does that sound about right? Um, we'll try and it. then how, about how many employees? I know it sounds like around 10,000. Yeah, a little over 10,000 people. A little over 10,000. So, um, you know, as I got to do this mini series with, with Spencer, it's evident to me, you know, you think about some of the folks who maybe don't rise to the level you've risen to in, in the world of, you know, being a chief people officer and, and the HR roles. And to me, I notice maybe a disconnect from the business sometimes where some of those folks are, they're so concerned about, do people like working here that sometimes they're maybe don't feel as connected to, did the business make any money? Right. And then where I see folks like at your level, uh, there feels like there's a genuine partnership with the CEO. When you think about your role and partnering with the CEO, how do you conceive of that? What advice do you have for, for other HR professionals who want to get to your level at some point and realize they may need to, you know, brush up on some business skills, not just people skills and, and, uh, and, and be able to like earn that trusted advisor status with a, you know, CEO of a $14 billion company. Yeah. This might be a good time to kind of go back a little bit in my history and some things I've learned, Jess, and maybe, maybe that will paint the right picture. So Interestingly enough, as the CPO, I started and my degree is in engineering. I have a master's in computer science, and that's my was my starting point back in the day. And I wrote code for a while, um, and I started there. Well, how did I get in this journey to the CPO, and how did I become a strategic partner to the CEO is a really good question. And there's a few things I learned along the way that were really helpful. And it turns out um, that a lot of these things I, I had learned very, very early, and it turned out to be advantage. One is, I learned a long time ago, and I learned this from my dad, it, you know, it's hard to succeed without hard work. It's kind of one of the tenets of success, and very few people, it may look, they may make it look easy, but they're typically working pretty darn hard. The second thing I always tell people is be positive. Find a way to be positive in any situation. Uh, rarely do people get together and say, let's promote somebody, let's take the person who's not positive and maybe has a negative perspective on things and always sees what we can't do. Let's 
it's hard to believe that that's going to rise to the surface. And the third one is the most important one. And it's the reason why I had a nonlinear career, I believe, as I look retrospectively. And that is I was curious. And when I say that, I was curious about the business. When I started as an engineer, I was working on a product and I wasn't happy to just do my job. Something in me made me think, well, why are we building this project at product? And what does it do? And who do we compete with? And why do we win? And are we better than the competition? And what's the history of this industry? I took it upon myself to learn that just because I was curious about it. And what I found is that propelled me from engineering into product management. Product management led to me running a PL and being a general manager. That led me to being a chief marketing officer here at Zebra. And then I transitioned from the chief marketing officer into the chief people officer. And I did both jobs for a couple of years, but now I'm just the chief people officer. Okay, well, what's the lesson there? The lesson is, the, I think, no matter where you're going to be in a company, if you can understand how they make money, there's a little bit of a Jim Collins kind of uh, thinking that I, I, I learned I learned this on my own, and then I read, and like Jim Collins writes about this idea. But being curious, understanding the business, how the business makes money, who they can be with, is critically important to every job. It's great context for any job in any company. And one of the things I'm doing right now, actually, with, my HR team is I'm making sure we all understand the basics of our markets and our competitors and where we where we win, where we don't, et cetera. I think it's critical because we're in charge of helping build and develop and retain the talent, which is the core asset of any company. So I think it's really important. It's been critical for me. I always give this advice to others that being curious is really, really important. And I've talked to a lot of CHROs and CPOs who have come from different fields and often that relationship with the CEO sometimes is built more on the business side than it is sometimes on the CHRO side. And again, there's there's room for all different perspectives, but I have found knowing the business first and being the CMO has helped me build that relationship with the CEO. But I think you can equally do it straight in line with HR as long as you have that curiosity and you learn that. You know, I'm going to ask a similar question, but in reverse. I, um, on this series, I, I kind of seem to ask everybody this, you know, so often, my other interviews, I'm interviewing the the founder who grew the company from the garage to into the billions, right? And and they, you know, most of them didn't come from being in charge of thousands of humans, right? And and it's not like the skill set they grew up on for so many of them. And so, um, and yet they they talk about people are our, you know people are our advantage and culture matters and stuff, but maybe that wasn't their expertise in building the business. And so. Thinking about advice for CEOs who are, you know, recently coming into hundreds of staff or thousands of staff or, or more, um, what kind of advice do you have for them in, um, as they're choosing that, that top people officer, sorting through the people that interview well versus the people that genuinely are curious about the rest of the business and, and all those things that you just said, what kind of advice would you have for a CEO to, to be able to uh, navigate that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think this is always a you know an important decision. Building that C-suite team is critically important. And this is a particular example uh, where maybe a, a startup that's growing quickly. What what do they do? Well, I think the foundation of this is, you know, you have to decide as the as the founder or the CEO, you know, what do I want out of HR? And it's one thing I preach actually in HR. It's a starting point, which is, hey, we can do all kinds of great things, but Let's be honest, most companies make something and sell something, and that's the primary objective. And most CEOs spend most of their time thinking about how do I make something of value and how do I sell something of value?
if people are at the center of that and the core of that, then there has to be some intersection there that says, hey, how does HR support us making better products, serving our customers better? Um, that has to be key to it. So what I find the common ground there is, and what I would be looking for as a CEO is, who's going to help me build you know, a great HR organization that makes sure I have a great culture and I have the best people and they want to be here and they're attracted to come here. They want to stay here. They want to build their career here. I want them to do that, but I want to do that in support of the business objectives. And I think that's that's the, the people who can connect those dots, I think are, are really the ones who are going to be the best fit in, in the team, in my opinion. And they're going to build that best trusted relationship because you don't want HR having... Uh, initiatives that aren't tied to the fundamentals of the business, right? Well, maybe I'll go a slightly different direction. Um, I'm a big fan of Andy Groh, who was kind of like, when he was running Intel, he's kind of like the Elon Musk of his time, right? And he, he's he got this great book, Only the Paranoid Survive. And he talks about um, the role of leadership and, and specifically training within a company. He says, like, it's one of the highest leverage things he thinks senior leaders can do is upgrade the entire staff. And like spending time to do training that's actually effective, that people didn't just sit through it. They now actually have a different capability, right? Like there was testing, there was measurement. It was, it was true learning, not just like knowledge inflow, right? Um, when you think about this across 10,000 people, what, what's an insight that you think can help people move from people sat through a training to people actually have a, an improved capability? Yeah, I think... Lots of things can happen here um, to, to make that connection. Obviously, one thing is time is a factor, right? So I think we all know if we go through training and we don't use any of those skills, then that becomes a little bit more challenging. So the more you can flexibly deliver some of those skills in the time of need uh, or near the time of need or when they can be used, that can be really, really helpful. That's one. Secondly, and something I'm super proud of what we've done here at Zebra is we've been spending a lot of time building out kind of a multiple layered training program. And that starts at the base level, something we we, we call um, the Zebra Education Network or Zen. And this is basically online learning where you can um, you can go and, and look at a collection of pathways that will help you learn a skill. And you can do that at your own time, at your own pace and when it's important to you. You can build skills that we then can keep track of that you've built those skills. It also allows managers or others to build customized pathways with different kinds of content relatively easily. And that's a great program for the masses. And it helps deliver through some technology kind of in the moment training. But I don't want to just focus on the tech and, and that base level training. Then we built up a series of training that tends to be as we move up into the leadership type of training, where there's a lot more face-to-face -face kind of interactions. And there's a cohort that's going through this together and it some of those higher level ones take months and there's a real project at hand and those are the kind of learnings you you you're going to keep with you because it's experiential and you're learning from other people in different areas of the business so i think that those kind of experiences tend to stick with you more than sitting through a class even if you get tested so those are a couple of strategies i would use is have a mechanism where you can have the masses available to them in the moment of need and people who are curious can really, you know, in, uh, kind of get themselves engaged in that curiosity and secondly have experiential things for leaders so that they can remember those and they can remember not just what they learned, but sometimes those contexts can be as important as what they learned. 
because they're going to interact with people around the world or in different functions they otherwise would have no access to. So they end up being really valuable relationships as much as the training, which I think tends to stick. Yeah, I, I love your background, Jeff. Um, so I think about it, software engineer and then product developer and then chief marketing officer and then chief people officer. I, I want to understand how much of your personal experience with perhaps this non-traditional career arc to where you are has informed how you think about leadership and development within your own organization. I think you touched upon it just now, but uh, you you commented that, listen, we have to help people understand the fundamentals of basically how things get made and how things get sold. And when you have a more comprehensive understanding uh, of those dynamics, you can really begin to think for the organization as a whole. And so I guess my question is, to what extent do you intentionally um, uh, move people around within Zebra? Uh, is that happening? Is that on your roadmap? Is, is that a, a design tenant of kind of your organizational L&D efforts? So I would say that this is an area that we've started and there's more work to be done. So what we have done is a few years ago, we started an intern program and we're hiring more and more of those interns to bring people in. And a few of the functional areas have started to build development programs where you come into, let's say, finance or marketing or IT, and you're on a specific rotational plan, right? So we know these people are good because they've been interns. They spent the summer here or they spent a year here, depending if, if they're outside of North America, it's typically a longer period of time. We know they're good. We know they fit with the culture. We we think really highly of them. Let's invest in them and, and rotate them around so that they get a, a great experience, let's say inside finance or inside IT. And then let's, at the end of that, let's place them somewhere that where there's need because we know there's always need. I think those programs have been very successful and they help people get that that feeling. I would say that there's more work to be done. And I think the area that we want to focus on, I want to focus on is as we built out our leadership training, how are we cultivating that alumni network? And one is how do we make sure that they can lean on each other and they can talk through opportunities and such and create those uh, those nonlinear career paths. But secondly, how do we leverage that alumni list when we're looking for somebody, right? So if we know somebody's awesome in this area, could we then use that alumni to say, hey, these people did great through this club. They were super impressive. Can they become a candidate for this other thing? That's just starting, to be fair, but it's something I, I think is a real opportunity. And I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't add this last one is, I think companies can really help and they can build programs around here. But one thing I have learned in all my in all my years uh, in business and having a nonlinear career myself is, I would never want to outsource my own career. So all these tools are helpful, all these things are important, but that doesn't take away the responsibility. You have to own your own career. So I always tell people, we'll help you build an, you know, an, an IDP, an individual development plan. People are happy to help. I get people all the time asking me to be a mentor. I've never said no, and I've never said regretting. I've never said no because I've, I've made the time for people. <laughs> There's opportunities out there, but people, the, the successful people are, are gonna take advantage of those. They're gonna grab those. And I don't think anyone's going to make your career for you. You can't outsource that. You need to own that yourselves. And the best of the best and the people who turn to the leaders 
the ones who recognize that and they own their career and they find ways to network and use those networks and learn what they need to do and be curious. They do those things either innately or they learn to do them. So companies can help, structured programs can help, but I think at some point there's a certain amount of responsibility that falls to the person themselves to not outsource and own their own career. It's really helpful. You know, it's prompted this this follow-up question where I think you and Zebra Technologies are at the bleeding edge of of, of smart data capture, you know, a, a, as a domain. Um, you know, as as that as, as this area becomes more sophisticated as it evolves, uh, how are you thinking about the talent that you will need to keep up with that? You know, as you think about the technical competencies that are required in your people, you know, but also the leadership competencies that are required. You know, what does that what does that balance look like as you think about where smart data capture as a whole is going? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, this is a great point for us because while we've set, you know, we've traditionally through scanning and uh, barcode printing and our mobile computing businesses sat in the hands of these frontline employees, we recognize that work is changing and we're getting into areas where we're not as well known. Things like robotics or machine vision or uh, software as a service. And we need those kind of skills and we need to attract those kind of people. But we also need to create the avenues such that people can learn those skills. People we are good in one area and they can move to another area. So we're trying to enable all of those. I think there's still a fair bit of work to be done here, but you need to be able to attract talent that people wouldn't say, well, is Zebra a robotics company? They may not associate with that. They certainly would associate us with barcode printing, scanning, and mobile computing because we're number one in all those spaces, but not so much in these other areas. So we need to be known for that. We need to be able to attract that kind of talent. We need to be able to create career paths for those kind of people. And we also need to have ways of moving our into our current staff into those roles. And again, there's a fair bit more work to be done there. But but I want to hit on one other thing you mentioned, Spencer, that, that I find really important, and that's leadership. And, and I'm going to go back to my own experience as a nonlinear uh, career path. You know, when I took over marketing here at Zebra, I had run marketing multiple times. But one thing I learned really quickly is leadership and functional expertise can go hand in hand, but they don't always go hand in hand. So while I was the CMO for six, seven years, I would have never said I'm the best marketer. But what, you know, I recognized what my own skill set was, and I focused on that, things I think are important to leadership, and they turn out they apply in multiple places. So I want to hit on the, the three things I think are most important if you want, you know, leadership success that I found over my career. So I'll use this opportunity to hit on those. You know, one is you always have to be building the best team. And sometimes it's easy to get comfortable with the team, but you need to push people to become better or make decisions to make sure you always have the best team because you you alone as leader will never be successful without an awesome team. And I think sometimes people get comfortable and I think it's good to be uncomfortable and making sure you always have the best possible team. Secondly, as the leader, leader, you can't do everything. So not only do you need great people, but you need to put the guardrails up of where the priorities are. And ruthless prioritization is something that's easy to say and hard to do. And I think that's absolutely critical. And the last piece I always say it's important for success is having gratitude. And that, that can be gratitude for a job well done. 
That can be giving back to the community. That can be sponsoring and mentoring others and giving back your time. All those things are important if you want, you know, team success. And I think the last thing I'll throw into this bucket is it's great to have all A players and the team and ruthlessly prioritizing gratitude, but you also have to be able to be a team builder. And I think if you can build great teams, attract great talent, if you can skinny down what you're focused on and focused on the things that really matter and you really care about your people and you give back and, and you can build a great team, you can get a lot of things done, even if you're not the best marketer or you're not the best HR domain person. And those skills I found, those leadership skills go in any Jeff, I think you need to write a book. Uh, those were three really great, great points, uh, great wisdom in those. Jess, what are your thoughts? Well, I kind of want to, I kind of want to follow on this idea, you know, um, right now, like at our company, we're, we've got a team that's really specializing in AI and automations. And, you know, like yesterday we had a big success. There's a, there's a, for our media company when we're like gathering the bios of the guests, there's one process that was taking about two and a half hours that yesterday they got it down to two minutes. And we're like, that's awesome. <laughs> and that's productivity that will carry on forever, right? These repeatable processes. And yeah, like, I mean, our team is like cutting new trail. Like we don't have some other mentor in the company that can teach them how to do that, right? And so there's like, I would love to hear the principles or your decision tree when it comes to like, okay, what are we gonna train internally? And what are we gonna send people out to get trained on? And are they gonna train people internally when they get back? And as you're making those decisions about What's best at our Zebra University versus sending people out to to somewhere else to get the training or certifications or whatever? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. It's one we wrestle with a bit. I think there was a time not too long ago where most training was done uh, externally. We had a sales academy when we brought salespeople in because they needed to learn the products. And I think they did a fantastic job. They still do. But when it came to leadership training or general training, we tended to outsource most of that. We've now decided what things need to be, you know, more zebra centric. And particularly when we think about leaders at zebra, we want to have more ownership of that. And of course there's some core learning and, and, um, uh, cultural learning that we want to be kind of zebra focused, but we can't do everything back to my ruthless prioritization. And one of the areas that we're just starting, and I always like analogies is, you know, when I got here, what is it? One of the things we got to do is figure out what we can't do and isn't as important to do. And I don't want to tell people, if you came to me and said, I want to do presentation training, I need to get better at presentation. We say, no, no, we don't have one of those. And, you know, there's a Zen pathway, as we call it. Maybe you can get something there, but that's not enough for you. And we just tell you, no, that's never a good answer for a group that's a service organization. Let's find a way to say yes. Well, the way to say yes, I believe, and we're just starting to build this, is how do we find out who's sent somebody to public speaking classes? Who's thought they did a good job and they got good value. And let's do some crowdsourcing of what's good and let's build the book of where to go get that kind of training. So I'm not telling you no, but I'm saying, hey, other people found this to be awesome and then keep that up to date. So that's how we're trying to make those choices. And again, at the highest level, what I'm looking at is what do we need to do as a business from, to, from HR to support the business? And those things seem to be really zebra specific. I, I want to do that training and be consistent where we don't, and it's a generalized skill, if it can't be done through our Zen pathway effectively, then let's outsource that somewhere. But let's also keep track if they're getting good responses. Are people feeling good about the value? 
and then let's make that a, that list available to everyone. And then what about on like the the really technical things, AI, robotics, some you know where you're like some of these you're probably just hiring subject matter experts in the company and then some of them are like no, we got somebody who it's worth investing. Let's send them out to get a certificate or a degree or create our own internal pathway and and like I specifically want to talk about the folks who maybe wouldn't have necessarily got hired for that job, but we've decided to help them upgrade so they can qualify for it. But it is these like these bleeding edge things or something that needs a certificate. Like how do you how do you mentally make sort through that? Yeah, I mean, I think we've done a number of things, but I think Jess, you fit on an area that there's more to do. So I think some of the good things we've done is we've definitely gone out and hired expertise. In some cases, we've acquired companies and that's brought the expertise. And then we've gone augmented that with other things we need in those more technical areas. So we've gone and hired expertise in some of these areas, robotics, SaaS software, et cetera, that we talked about. We've also tried to draw on university systems. So where we can draw on a university that's building that kind of skill set themselves, that's a way for us to get that expertise have those people intern, bring them in. Now, when it comes to, hey, I don't know anything about robotics, but I want to be a robotics engineer, I have to say that there's a lot more work to be done there, but we we need to continue to find ways to do that. So we do have some job shadowing programs that we do. We have ways of exposing people to that. I think if you're a great software engineer and you want to learn robotics, there's a path through there, but I think we can make that path easier. Yeah, interesting. Do there. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think of the same things at our company. So, um, Spencer, I know we're we're closing on time. We're going to head back to you for a final yeah. question or two and go yeah. from there. Um, so, Jeff, I, I've loved this discussion. Um, you've mentioned at least six or seven things that I'm going to write down just as soon as we conclude. Uh, but I guess my final question would be, like, what advice would you give your you know, 30 year younger self, that individual that graduated with a master's degree in, in computer science, uh, knowing what you know now, what would you tell that individual in terms of uh, how to be successful uh, in either work or non-work family? Like what are the, what are the, how would you distill those nuggets to that younger individual? I'm going to, I'm going to add one to my list, uh, and these are these these are the chapters I would think of as in a book, Spencer. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, there's the six things I talked about before. I'm going to add one more that, piece of advice. So as I said before, individual success to me it's hard work, being curious, being positive. Hard to overcome those. When it comes to team success or leadership success, I find you know always build a you know the best possible team and build the teamwork around it. Ruthless prioritization, gratitude. But the other thing I would tell myself, and since we have some visuals, I'll point to this poster in the back. I learned from a colleague. Um, I was, I, uh, this was about 2002. I got pulled into the company I was with, the CEO's office, never been in there before. And he told me I was moving to Virginia, which I did. I was uh, 38 years old and I lived in Illinois my whole life. I had no intention of leaving. I had two preschool age kids and I had no desire to leave. Uh, and he sent me to Virginia and I have to say, uh, my wife took this on so awesomely. She's like, let's turn this into an adventure. And I met a guy who I, I worked for. We bought a startup company out there. I won't name him, but if he's listening, he'll know who he is. And what I found is this guy was the funniest guy I'd ever met. He was uber successful. He 
found a way to be serious when he needed to be serious. And he found a way to bring humor into the work environment and it, it helped build the team and helped keep people positive. And I think through my first 38 years and at least, you know, fair bit of that in corporate America, I, you know, I knew to wear a suit and dress for success and be a pretty serious person. And it was that person who I still talk to today. I talked to him just a few weeks ago. I learned at some point, if you're going to be successful, you have to be you. You have to be yourself. And it's probably an underlying thing. And I said, you know what? I love, you know, appropriately bringing humor as a diffuser, as a team builder. It's something I innately do with all my friends, but I never did it work because I just thought it wasn't right and you couldn't be yourself. And so, hey, look, I'm a Star Wars fan. I have a Mandalorian poster back here, right? I... I have a Grogu in my office at home if you were to be talking to me at home. At some point, you got to be yourself. Hey, when it when it needs to be serious and we need to buckle down, I'm all about it. But we spend a lot of time at work and life can be short. Let's have some fun along the way, right? Let's enjoy the ride. Whether it's good, times are, times are good, times are bad, business is cyclical, but let's enjoy the ride. So uh, that's what I'd tell myself if I could rewind 30 years. Yeah, I love this that. This is the way. Yeah, this yeah. is the way. As two this Mandalorian fans to another, this is the way. Yeah, Jeff, yeah. love that. Jeff, thanks so much for for sharing uh, some time uh, with us and sharing your personal perspective. Um, it sounds like Zebra is always looking for really wonderful talent. Um, as Jess mentioned, we're going to be pushing this out to a, 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 a number of, of uh, talent channels. Uh, where should... Uh, prospective employees go to learn more about your company. Yeah, I would I would reference people to come to zebra.com. And if you scroll down, you, you can see the career site. And the career site's really helpful. We've built some capability in there. We'll help you find things that match your skill set that you can apply for. So we all, as you said, Spencer, we're always hiring. We'd love for you to come to our website, our careers page, and look what we have to offer and learn more about our company. Perfect. Jeff, thank you so much. Sure. Hopefully that was uh, what you were looking for. Hopefully that worked out well. So 